Well, this is a special joy for me to be with you. I've been looking forward to this for several years, actually. And um, I do need to say just at the beginning how grateful I am for Dr. Jason Allen and this invitation. And uh, I kind of teared up last time. Um, I first met Dr. Allen when he was 20 years old. And he was just dating Karen. She had braces at the time, in fact. (laughs) She was that young. And um, I saw their courtship develop and grow and had the privilege of marrying them. And God's stamp was on Dr. Allen's life from really from the beginning as he was just recently converted before I met him. And he joined our church, sat under my preaching. And I'm just so grateful to see how God has used him. So I need to move on so I can stop crying. (laughs) Normally in a situation like this, I would be preaching the Bible. I'm professor of preaching at the Master's Seminary for John MacArthur and oversee their Doctor of Ministry program for expository preaching. And that's what I do probably five or six times a week is just preach through passages of Scripture But I also love church history, and as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the number one discipline that a pastor should know outside of the Bible itself is church history, because as we study church history, we are actually discipled by giants of the faith. And it's been my privilege to have written a number of biographies of the great men of the faith, Luther and Calvin, Edwards, Whitfield, Tyndale, Knox, Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones, my latest book just came out a couple of, really about a month ago on John Wycliffe. And I've just come from John MacArthur's church where I did a series on the road to the Reformation on a Friday, Saturday, where I walked us through John Wycliffe to John Huss to Martin Luther. And my life has been greatly shaped and influenced by these great men of the past. I'm somewhat like John Piper who said, my best friends are dead men. Um, They leave their mark upon us as we study them, and I would encourage each and every one of you to be a student of church history, and specifically the biographies of great men. As I talked with Dr. Allen about what I would... Um, what message I would bring um, in our discussion, uh, because I have such a great uh, affinity for Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, we decided upon uh, the subject today and tomorrow that I would speak to you on Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And so I think that's appropriate in that you have the Spurgeon College here. This is the Spurgeon Lecture Series, and you house the Spurgeon Library So if there was ever a place for me to address the subject of the person in life and ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, it would be here at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. So his life and ministry is really like trying to put your arms around the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, He lived the life of a hundred men. It would take us several semesters, really, just to begin to scratch the surface of the giftedness and the greatness of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. But today and tomorrow, I would like to focus upon the evangelistic preaching of Charles Spurgeon. Arguably, the greatest evangelistic pastor who ever stood in one pulpit and preached in one church was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. If Martin Luther is the greatest reformer God ever gave to the church, if John Calvin is the greatest theologian, if Jonathan Edwards is the greatest pastor philosopher, if George Whitfield is the greatest itinerant evangelist, then Charles Haddon Spurgeon has to be the greatest pastor evangelist that God has ever given to the church. We are, of course, familiar with the great Baptist preacher Spurgeon. He pastored the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London for 38 years from, its, from when he first went there as the New Park Street Chapel to what it became world famous 
the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Uh, Spurgeon pastored there from 1854 to 1892, and he easily surpasses all preachers in all of history as the most beloved, the most popular, and the most quoted preacher of all time. It is virtually impossible to overstate or to exaggerate the scope and comprehensive nature of his ministry. I think it would be helpful for us, just by way of introduction, just to have a brief thumbnail survey of the man and his ministry before we look at some specifics. Spurgeon was born, just to put him into a historical context for you, in 1834, into a family of preachers. His father was a preacher, his grandfather was a preacher, and it was as though he was destined for the pulpit. He was converted at age 15, he began preaching at age 16, and he began pastoring his first church at age 17. His abilities were so immediately recognized that the news spread all the way to London. And at age 19, he was called to London to pastor the most famous and well-known Reformed Baptist Church in all of England, the New Park Street Chapel. When he arrived, the sanctuary held 1,200 people, and on an average Sunday, there were less than 200 people in that sanctuary with uh, an active membership of only 100. Spurgeon stepped into the pulpit, and he began to preach, and it became obvious that the power of God was on his preaching to such extent that within the first year, the sanctuary was filled to overflowing, even for midweek services. Uh, the church had to soon move out, and at age 21, they moved into the music hall of Royal Surrey Gardens, which held, um, excuse me, they moved into Exeter Hall, uh, which seated 4,000 people and which would accommodate another 1,000 people. Uh, that was at age 21. Uh, they had to move again because of the large masses of people who were coming. And at age 22, Spurgeon moved the church into the music hall at Royal Surrey Gardens, which held 12,000 people. Um, every service was filled to overflowing. There were traffic jams in London just trying to come here, Spurgeon preach. He was a child prodigy, really, uh, as he stood in the pulpit. And at age 23, he addressed the nation on a national day of humiliation and repentance as he preached to 23,000 people without a microphone that gathered in the agricultural hall. So many young men began to gather around Spurgeon just wanting to catch fire from his fire that at age 23, Spurgeon founded the pastor's college just to organize and accommodate uh, the many young men who were wanting to sit under his influence. Though he himself had never attended Bible college, yet he now was the primary force and really the sole force for establishing this new college. At age 26, Spurgeon moved the church into what was known as the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which was the largest Protestant house of worship in the entire world. It held 6,000 people, and there was never a service on Sunday morning or Sunday night in which there was a vacant seat. In fact, Spurgeon had to ask the members to not come to church once a quarter to accommodate the many visitors who were flocking to sit under the preaching of the Word of God. From that point until his death in 1892, every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening was packed to overflowing. And when the tabernacle closed for one month for refurbation, towards the end of his ministry, they moved into an auxiliary 
location for one month, and there were over 20,000 people for every worship service that flocked to hear Spurgeon preach. And at the end of that month, they then crammed back into the Metropolitan Tabernacle that held 6,000 people. His preaching accomplishments were titanic in scope. His sermons were transcribed, he lightly edited them, and they were sold on the street corners of London as the penny pulpit for those who could not get into the church. Uh, Some 25,000 copies were sold each week in London, and they were put on trains and sent around the rest of England and Scotland and Wales. And Spurgeon was literally discipling the nation. His sermons were cabled across the Atlantic and printed in newspapers in the United States. Uh, They were purchased by fathers at grocery stores, taken home. The family would gather around the dining room table, and the father would read Spurgeon's sermon to his wife and children for daily devotions. Uh, These sermons were read in hospitals. They were taken into prisons. They were preached verbatim by laymen. They were cherished by soldiers. They were carried by missionaries. In fact, when, Mar- uh, when David Livingston died in the heart of Africa and Zambia, and you know the story how they, the natives cut out his heart, planted his heart in Zambia, and they mummified the body, carried it to the coast, and took his body back to England. There was on him um, a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. The sermons have been translated into 40 languages around the world. He has some 3,800 sermons in print in his 63-volume set of his sermons that has sold each sermon. Individually, if you add it up, has sold over half a billion sermons. It is the largest such collection of any author on any subject in the world. Charles Haddon Spurgeon towered over his day, and he continues to tower over, in many ways, this day. He is affectionately known as the Prince of Preachers, and I think the greatest preacher God has ever given to the church since the Apostle Paul. And so we would ask the question, what was it about Spurgeon's preaching that made him so wildly popular and so widely popular? Certainly, he was immensely gifted in the pulpit. He was strategically positioned in London. But at the heart of his success, I believe that it can be attributed to the fact that he was such an evangelist in the pulpit. Uh, He carried out Paul's admonition to his young son, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, do the work of an evangelist as you would preach the word in season and out of season. And so in this session, I want to focus on really the heart of his success, which was his gospel preaching and his desire to win souls to Christ. There is much for you and me to learn from this because at the heart of each of our ministries and at the heart of each one of our lives Uh, There must be this desire, this passion to win lost people to faith in Jesus Christ. It it has been uh, reasoned that the reason after our conversion that the Lord leaves us here on the earth, that He does not immediately take us to heaven after we enter into a saving knowledge of Christ, is not simply for the worship because worship is far better in heaven. Uh, It's not simply for the fellowship, because fellowship in heaven is far better. Um, It's not simply for the pursuit of holiness, because our sanctification will become glorification in heaven. That the reason that the Lord has left us here on planet earth after we have entered through the narrow gate is that we might do here what we can never do in heaven which is to win lost souls to faith in Jesus Christ. So we must never lose sight of that. And even while you're here at Spurgeon College and while you're here at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, 
We must be reminded that the knowledge of the truth is never an end in itself. It is only a means to a far greater end. And that, that end to which the truth is appointed to us is that we might be sanctified by it, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also that the truth might be poured through us into the lives of others and that God would use us to reach others for Jesus Christ. As Spurgeon would put it, that he did not want to go to heaven alone, that he wanted to bring with him a vast number of souls that God had used him to reach for Christ. So this morning, let me just give you a couple of headings, and tomorrow we will work our way through some more headings. But this really is at the heart of the success of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So the first heading I want to set before you is Spurgeon's priority. Spurgeon's priority because the priority of his preaching ministry was winning lost souls to Christ. I think it is best captured in one of his more famous books entitled The Soul Winner. They were prepared for his students on Friday afternoon in the pastor's college as he would go in and address the student body. He prepared messages on evangelistic preaching. And in his book, The Soul Winner, Spurgeon said, quote, soul winning is the chief business of the Christian ministry. Indeed, it should be the main pursuit of every true believer. For Spurgeon, winning souls to Christ was the tip of the spear. It was the rudder of the ship. It was the engine of the car. It was the bottom line that he was always driving toward, which was to win souls to Christ. And not just to present Christ, but to actually win people to Christ. He called the winning of souls to Christ, quote, the most royal employment, close quote. In other words, no higher calling could he fulfill than to be the instrument in the hand of God to usher souls into the kingdom of God. Spurgeon said, I would sooner bring one sinner to Jesus Christ than unpick all the mysteries of the divine word, for salvation is the thing we are to live Four. So Spurgeon understood, and he had arguably the best evangelical personal library in all of England, which is now housed here. He understood that that was simply the platform or the foundation upon which he would stand, that all of his reading and all of his knowledge with his photographic memory would simply be used so that he could reach souls for Christ. As Spurgeon went on to say, I would rather be the means of saving one soul than be the greatest orator on earth. I would sooner see the poorest sinner saved than become an archbishop of Canterbury. I would rather be the winner of souls than be a king in theological debate. Spurgeon said, my main business is the saving of souls. This one thing I do. This should challenge all of us, each and every one of us, that we would be using what we learn simply as a far greater means to accomplish a greater end, which is reaching people for Christ. In fact, in every sermon, Spurgeon sought to present the gospel and call the lost to faith in Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, I take my text and make a beeline to the cross. Though Christ is not in every verse of the Bible, Spurgeon understood he could get to Christ from every verse in the Bible. He said, I always feel that I have not done my duty as a preacher of the gospel. If I go out of this pulpit without having clearly set before sinners the way of salvation. Though Spurgeon never issued a public invitation to get up out of your seat and walk forward. He said, a wounded deer 
wants to withdraw to the thicket by itself to be to lick its wounds and not to be paraded publicly but having said that Spurgeon's goal was to win souls to Christ right where they sat as they were under his preaching in fact Spurgeon said there is not a seat in this auditorium to which I can point where there has not been a soul that has been won to Christ He understood that in preaching the gospel, that the power of God was unusually unleashed. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Spurgeon said, preach the gospel, the gates of hell shake. Preach the gospel, prodigals come home. Preach the gospel to every creature. It is the master's mandate and the master's power to everyone who believes. So this was really the driving force and the central thrust of Spurgeon's ministry, and I think it unlocks for us the success of his ministry. He was always trying to reach souls for Christ. Concerning this priority, one more quote before we move on. I love this quote. To win a soul from going down into the pit is more a more glorious achievement than to be crowned in the arena of theological controversy. To have faithfully unveiled the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ will be in the final judgment accounted worthier service for the master than to have solved the problems of religious of the religious sphinx or to have cut the Gordian knot of apocalyptic difficulty. My happiest thought is that when I die, it shall be my pleasure to enter into the rest of the bosom of Christ and to know that I shall not enjoy my heaven alone. Thousands have already entered there who have been drawn to Christ under my ministry. Oh, what bliss it will be to fly to heaven and to have multitudes of converts before me and behind me." Close quote. So I think each one of us must give careful thought as to why I'm here on this planet and to why I am in the kingdom of God. And God has called us out of the world to go back into the world to reach lost souls for Christ And this must be our primary task in this world. Spurgeon understood that, and we must recapture this priority again. So that's Spurgeon's priority. Second, Spurgeon's persuasion. Where did Spurgeon learn this priority of winning souls to Christ? I mean, other people were reading their Bible. Uh, Other people were sound in confessional statements of faith. Uh, Other people knew the storyline of the Bible. What was it that captured the soul of Charles Haddon Spurgeon for him to be such an evangelist with the Word of God? And so I want to give you several reasons why Spurgeon was such a soul winner And it is with the hope that God would use these to stir up our own soul to be a soul winner. It really begins first with his Bible convictions. For Spurgeon, it was as though the entire Bible was calling out, screaming to him to bring the message of salvation to a lost and perishing world. Spurgeon caught fire from the Bible itself that ignited into an evangelistic zeal. He he took to heart what Jesus said to his disciples when he called them on the Sea of Galilee, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. For Spurgeon, he understood that if he was not fishing for men, he would not be following Christ that the two were inseparably connected and and bound together, that if you follow Christ, you will be fishing for the souls of men. For it was Jesus who came into this world to seek and to save that which is lost. And if we follow in behind 
our Lord, we too will be fishers of men and women to cast the net of the gospel into the sea of humanity, but to also draw the net and to bring them, to be used by God to bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Spurgeon also caught fire from the Apostle Paul, who said in 1 Corinthians 9.22, I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. He understood that he must put his arms around lost, perishing sinners in order to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. And one of his most famous sermons was from Proverbs 11, verse 30, which says, he who is wise wins souls. He believed it was very foolish to live your life as a Christian, as a believer, and not be intent upon reaching others for faith in Christ, that a mark of wisdom would be to win souls for Christ. And in that sermon, the soul winner, preached in 1869, Spurgeon said, oh, the joy of knowing that a sinner once at enmity with God has been reconciled by God to God by the Holy Spirit through the words spoken by our feeble lips. Spurgeon was deeply grounded in the Word of God and in sound doctrine and in theology, and it made his evangelism prolifically powerful. Spurgeon was deeply convinced of basic Bible doctrine, the depravity of man, the bankruptcy of self-righteousness, the certainty of the final judgment, the severity of eternal hell, the reality of the lake of fire, the sufficiency of Christ's atonement, the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ alone, the necessity of the new birth, the glory of heaven above. All of these truths, these core doctrinal truths were igniting his soul and his passion to win the lost to Christ. And how could it be any different for us as well? If we know that the world is filled with great sinners and that Christ is a great Savior, and that we have the only message of salvation that can possibly deliver them from the wrath to come and eternal hell, then how could we hoard the message to ourselves in the holy huddle? How could we not go into the highways and byways and compel them to come in? How could we not shout it from the housetops, the message of salvation in Jesus Christ alone? That's where Spurgeon's really persuasion began with the Bible itself. But second, his Puritan reading. Spurgeon was firmly grounded in evangelism because of the influence upon him early in his life. As a young boy, his family was so poor that when his siblings were born, he was sent to his grandfather's house to live. His grandfather was a preacher, James Spurgeon, a strong preacher and deeply steeped in the Puritans. And as a young boy, the intellectual prowess of Spurgeon began to read the Puritans, and he was exposed as a very young boy to many Puritan classics that left a deep and lasting impression upon him. The Puritans were physicians of the soul. And when they preached, they viewed in their preaching that it was the primary means of grace. In other words, the Puritans said, if you had only one hour to give to God, what would most profit your soul? Would it be one hour alone with your Bible, one hour alone with God with an open Bible, or one hour sitting under the preaching of the Word of God by a man who is called by God and gifted by God, a man who is empowered by the Holy Spirit, a man who has invested 15 to 20 hours in the preparation of this sermon and who would bring it 
with the force of heaven upon his exposition and bring it with heart-searching, penetrating application and exhortation. Which of those two would most profit your soul? And to a man, the Puritan said, it would be to sit under the preaching of the Word of God. Now, both will profit your soul, but the question is, which would most profit your soul? It was, the Puritans referred to it as the primary means of grace, not the only means of grace, but the chief and primary means of grace. Aspersion had that imprint on him from the Puritans as a, at a very young age. And as a young man, he read Richard Baxter's classic, Call to the Unconverted. In this work, Richard Baxter conclude, uh, really issues an examination of Hebrews 3, verses 7 and 8. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. And Baxter stressed the, the urgency and the immediacy that every person has to believe in Christ today that tomorrow is the devil's day, that today is God's day, and that when you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must immediately respond with saving faith and come to faith in Christ. And at the end of this classic, A Call to the Unconverted, Baxter concludes with 50 reasons why you should give your life to Christ today, 50 reasons why you must Trust Christ now. And I want to give you the first several of those just so that you can hear this in your own ear. But this is the influence that was upon young Spurgeon, even at age five and six, as he's growing in his grandfather's under his influence. Uh, the first reason that Baxter gives consider to whom it is you are commanded to turn. In other words, you are commanded to turn to God. And you must do that without delay now. Second, consider to what you must turn. You are to turn to Him for salvation. Third, consider from what you are called to turn. You are called to turn away from a life of self-righteousness and sin. And Baxter reasons that you must do it now because sin is killing you now. You are perishing now. Fourth, your delaying shows that you love not God, but that you love your sin more than God? How could you continue to be self-absorbed in, in your own self when you could turn to God now, who is far more glorious than you? Fifth, consider your condition, what condition you are in. Why would you delay? You are perishing now, this moment, Baxter reasoned. Why would the drowning man delay in being rescued when you could be rescued now before it's too late? And then sixth, your delaying gives great advantage to the devil. The longer you postpone, the more beachheads the devil is establishing in your life. You must turn to Christ now. That left an indelible impression upon Charles Spurgeon. Uh, far more so uh, than, than other preachers of his day. And one of the most famous sermons that Spurgeon ever gave is a sermon that has the short title, Now. His passage was 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 4. The text says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He delivered this sermon on December the 4th, 1864. It is a classic sermon of the immediacy of the moment for the person who is without Christ to come to faith in Christ now. And just to read you a few excerpts from this message, Spurgeon trying to reason with his listeners to, to, to peel back the excuses for their procrastination 
that would hold them back from that moment coming to faith in Christ. Spurgeon said, you say, I would like to go home and pray about this. My text does not say, go home and pray about it. My text says, now is the accepted time. You say, if my text does not say it will be the accepted time when you get home and pray. It says now, and as I find you now in this pew, now is the time for you to be saved. If you trust Christ now, you will be accepted. If now you are enabled to throw yourself simply into the hands of Christ, now is the accepted time for you to be saved, not tomorrow. Some of my hearers who listened to me last year and in the years that are past are now in hell, now where no home can come, now where no gospel can be preached to them, now where they are bitterly in regret that they wasted the preaching of the Word and despised their opportunities, now they are in hell where their memory holds a dreadful reign, now where the worm does not die, now where the fire is not quenched, now where they gnaw their tongue under the flames, now where God's fury is manifested to the full in the hideous fire. Now come to faith in Christ. That's how a real preacher preaches. That's how a God-sent man preaches. It's not, I want you to go home and pray about this. I want you to consider this. No, the imperative of the gospel is to repent and to believe in the present tense, and we must do so now. Spurgeon also, as a very young boy, devoured Joseph Eileen's call to the unconverted. And as a very young man, he read this Puritan classic, Matthew Mead's The Almost Christian Discovered. And in this book, Mead talks through how close you can be to the narrow gate, yet not go through the narrow gate. How close you can be to entering into the kingdom of God, yet remain in the kingdom of darkness. How close you can be to knowing Christ, but only know about Him. And with great detail and with great persuasion, Matthew Mead, the almost Christian discovered, talks about that you can have your toes right up to the narrow gate. You can watch others go through the narrow gate. You can admire the narrow gate. You can sing praises about the narrow gate, yet you have never entered through the narrow gate yourself. And you will be doubly condemned that you are so close, yet so far away, that it would be more tolerable in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah than for you who are so close, yet fall back from Christ. So Spurgeon had all of this, like logs being stacked up on a, in a fireplace, each one adding more fury within his own heart, more passion and fervency within his own heart. Yet even at this time, Spurgeon himself was unconverted, that at this point he was yet outside the kingdom of God. And Matthew Mead, at the end of this book, calls for self-examination, to examine yourself, whether you be in the faith, that there will be many who will profess Christ but not possess Christ, that there will be many whose names are on a church roll but is not in the Lamb's book of life, that there will be many who will know about God but never know God in a saving relationship. Spurgeon carried this inside of him, and he was well aware of the thousands that would throck to, to, to hear him preach, that there were untold multitudes who were yet unconverted. He understood that most people in churches are lost, that the broad path has the many who are saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many wondrous works? 
And I will declare unto you in that day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. Spurgeon understood that that was the, the masses of the people, religious but lost, and that he must reach them for Christ as they sat under his preaching. He carried that with him for the rest of his life. Spurgeon said, when we take down a volume of Puritan theology, we find in a, in a single page more thinking, more learning, more Scripture, more real teaching than in whole volumes of modern thought. The modern man would be right if he would possess even the crumbs that fall from the table of the Puritans. So Spurgeon was greatly impacted by the Puritans who J.I. Packer called the Redwoods of church history, those giants who rose so tall in their generation. Let me give you one more, and then we'll be complete for today. And that not only his Bible convictions were driving him, and not only his Puritan reading was fueling him, but third, his own conversion. Most of us here today, I would assume, are well familiar with the conversion of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It's one of the most well-known conversion stories that, that is known. But let's just rehearse it just for a moment. He had grown up under his father's preaching. He had grown up under his grandfather's preaching. He had grown up reading these Puritan classics. Yet at age 15, Spurgeon was still yet unconverted until the power of the Word of God by the Spirit of God exploded in his life. It was on a Sunday morning, January the 6th, 1850. Spurgeon was walking to church, going up a hill in a little town of Colchester, when a snowstorm drove, uh, blew through town. He was going to his father's church to hear his father preach, but because of the snowstorm, he could not make it all the way on foot to where his father was preaching and had to make a quick turn to the left. He went into a small primitive Methodist church. The snowstorm was so intense that the people could not even get to church. There were only 12 people in church that day. The preacher himself could not make it to church. He was hindered. And so a reluctant lay preacher, someone had to preach, stepped into the pulpit and spontaneously, extemporaneously took Isaiah 45, 22 for his text. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. The man began to preach as Spurgeon recalled it. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking does not take a great deal of pain. It is not lifting your foot or lifting your finger. It is just look. A man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be rich to look. Anyone can look. My text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourself. But there is no looking there. You will never find any comfort in yourself. There is no grace, no salvation in yourself. Some of you look to God the Father. But no, the text says, look unto Him who is Jesus Christ. Look unto Christ. And then the preacher, this lay preacher began to say, look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood as though He is Christ speaking through Him. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at my Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. And Spurgeon said the man then looked at him and began to address him individually. You there, young man, who looks so miserable in his sin, look to Jesus Christ. Look. Look, look, you have nothing to do but look 
And if you will look, you will live. Spurgeon said it was like an arrow shot from heaven's bow. And the gospel hit its intended target right into his heart. And Spurgeon said, I saw it once, the way of salvation. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. Spurgeon never recovered from his own conversion. He had been saved under the preaching of the Word, and he had known the power of the preached Word to convert a soul. And for the rest of his life, he would be like that reluctant lay leader who stood up and preached, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For the rest of his life, he would be pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ and urging them to look. In fact, that, that passage, look unto me and live, personified in that passage in Numbers where the brazen serpent was lifted up, that became Spurgeon's logo. And on the, on the binding of each of those 63 volumes, you can go into the library and look at it for yourself, is the brass serpent lifted up by Moses in the wilderness, look unto me, that Jesus in John 3 said was in reality him. Spurgeon said, if I was saved by a simple gospel preached, then I am bound to preach that same gospel till I die so that others may be saved. And Spurgeon said, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the second coming, He will have no trouble finding me, for I will be standing at the foot of the cross, and I will be pointing upward to a dying Savior who has been raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. When the Lord returns, He will find me at the foot of the cross, and I will be pointing Sinners to faith in Jesus Christ. This is really so biblical. The entire Old Testament is just wave after wave after wave of preachers, prophets raised up to declare, thus says the Lord. God sent His Son into this world to die on a cross, but during His public ministry, God made Him a preacher. He prepared his way with a preacher who was a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Jesus spent three years of his public ministry training his disciples to go out and preach. And then in the Great Commission, he commanded them to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. When you read the book of Acts, one out of every four verses is a sermon or the equivalent of a sermon. The early church was a gospel-preaching church. First, second, Timothy, Titus prioritized preaching. The book of Hebrews is one evangelistic sermon. The priority that God has placed on the preaching of the gospel is so abundantly clear. In 1 Peter 1, verse 23, I'll conclude with this. Peter writes, the great preacher on the day of Pentecost, who stood up and preached, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made to be both Lord and Christ. This, this same preacher writes in 1 Peter 1, 23, you have been born again, not a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now listen to Peter's interpretive comment. And this is the word which was preached to you. It was basically understood in the first century that if you were converted and if you were saved, it was because you had been under the preaching of the word of God. And so what do we learn from Spurgeon? We learned that 
He was mightily used by God, perhaps more than any other preacher. And that at the heart of Spurgeon's preaching was preaching the gospel of Christ, preaching the cross of Christ with the desire to win lost souls to Christ. It was the priority. It was job number one. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And for Spurgeon, it was the main thing. He remained tethered and anchored to that. And that he did so because of his convictions in the Bible, because of his reading from the Puritans, and because of his own conversion having been one to Christ with the simplest gospel preaching that there could have been. As you are a student at Spurgeon College, as you are a student at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, here where Spurgeon has cast such a shadow over this institution, may may we be aware of who he truly is. Maybe may we be aware of what was driving him in his ministry, that he was on a quest to win souls to Christ. May this be true of our lives. May each and every one of us be an evangelist, whether it be in our home, whether in our school, whether in the community, whether across the seas, whether in a pulpit whether in a classroom, wherever it is that the Lord will send you, may it be that our goal is for souls to win them to Christ. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father, I pray that what we have just considered would truly sink down into our psyche and that you would remind us yet again of our need to be fishers of men and women. We desire to follow you, and we desire to follow you in the very steps that you laid out as you went into the highways and the byways and compelled the lost to enter into the kingdom. May you use us In this same way, in Jesus' name, amen.